Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to office hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus to learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. Hello and welcome back to Office Hours. Yes, we've returned from our long break. Another thrilling look at academia here at the University of Kentucky. And joining us today is our wonderful guest, Professor Stamatel. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's get right into it. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Like, what kind of work do you do here? What do you do? Uh, what department are you in? Things like that. Sure. I am in the sociology department. Uh, I still consider myself a new faculty member. This is my fourth year here. I was previously on faculty at the School of Criminal Justice at the University of Albany. So mm -hmm. I'm a sociologist who studies crime. Um, so that's why I worked in a criminal justice program. Um, I actually came to Kentucky specifically to be back in sociology uh, and because they were hiring somebody who does international criminology. So that's where I do most of my research um, and I also teach a in that area. Okay, all right. I understand that you're actually a part of an education abroad opportunity that's coming up. And I know that that's what we want to really talk about today, uh, in depth at least. So um, could you just give us a little primer on that, just some basic details to start off with? Sure. So this is a new study abroad program. It's uh, led by me. So you'll have a UK faculty member involved, but it's organized by a group called International Study Abroad, uh, which is one of sort of the big professional organizations. And so the benefit of that is that they handle all the logistics and they know what they're doing and they're very well organized. Mm -hmm. So we're going to spend three weeks in Morocco and Spain. Uh, so we start off the program in Morocco and then we end it in Spain. And the goal of the program is to study crime and justice in different countries around the world. Okay. That's interesting. So it's just Morocco and Spain, correct? Yes. Okay. So how long is the program? So it's three weeks and it's roughly um, cut in half, about 10 days in, in each okay. place, plus, you know, travel time and that sort of so thing. I, I'm curious how exactly, this might be a little inside baseball, but uh, how exactly do you kind of pitch this sort of idea and get it going like before in, in the early stages? Yeah, so this is actually a great question because this is all new for me. Um, so this is my first study abroad experience, although I knew coming to UK I wanted to do study abroad. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know where, I didn't know how to do it. So what happened came about a little bit by chance. Um, I was invited by a colleague to go to a faculty study abroad program. Mm. So it was one week in Spain and Morocco. Um, so it's sort of the short version of what the students do. And it was run by this organization called ISA. And they basically, you know, showed us all the highlights of, you know, where they take students. They showed us the academic facilities. Uh, we walked around the college campuses. We observed classes. And it was also a kind of a learning experience for us. They talked a lot about sort of interesting themes across these two countries. And I left there thinking that was fabulous. I had a great time, but I had no plans to do study abroad there. Mm -hmm. um, it's not where I do my research. I do my research in uh, Europe, mostly in Eastern Europe. So I was thinking I would do study abroad there. 
But the more, after I came home, I kept thinking about that experience and how great it would be for students. Um, so then I had a conversation with Tony Ogden at the Education Abroad office, and we decided to give it a go. Okay, all right. Were there any specific things that you were thinking about when you came back that you know really clicked with you and said, okay, yeah, this Morocco and Spain thing seems like a really good idea? Because you, you say you thought about it, and then right. it kind of came around, but... Uh, yeah. So a lot of study abroad programs, actually most of them, are done in one location, in one country. Maybe mm-hmm. you'll do a couple of cities in one country, but it's really um, one place. Um, and I'm a comparative criminologist, and so all of the teaching and research I do is on multiple countries. I really wanted students to get the experience of being in more than one country. So typically you go somewhere abroad, let's say Spain, and then you kind of implicitly compare your experience to the U.S. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make it really more explicit. So I wanted to do two countries, and logistically, that's really difficult. Right. (laughs) Um, Just organizing it, moving students around, that sort of thing is is complicated. It's a little expensive, too, so you want to make a program that's reasonable Mm -hmm. for students. So what I liked about this program when I went is they really convinced me about how easy it was to do the two countries. And ISA is also in the process of trying to build programs across the two countries. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were really excited as well to have us um, do it, and they've been very cooperative. But I like the idea of exposing students to more than one country. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, it's great because you get two continents. And what was interesting about this particular location is that historically there's a lot of there are a lot of commonalities and culturally, even though we don't currently think of those two places as similar, mm-hmm. uh, we think of Africa and Europe as very distinct. Once you're there, you appreciate the similarities. So for from you know an educational point of view, comparing and contrasting is really easy there. Okay. Yeah, I wonder when it comes to Spain and Morocco, you say there are cultural similarities, but when it comes specifically to what the students will be studying mm-hmm. in sociology, are there any significant differences worth talking about that, that, that would maybe, I guess what I'm getting at is why mm-hmm. is this two countries? Like what is the academic importance of these two specific countries being uh, the, the subjects of the study? So there are a couple of interesting points. The first one is we tend to study crime as a U.S. phenomenon, mm-hmm. and that's typical um, in any sociology and criminal justice program. We've, we're very narrow in thinking about crime. So I wanted to give students a different experience. So crime in Morocco and Spain, recorded crime is much lower than it is in the United States, particularly violent crime. Okay. So from that perspective, they immediately have a contrast, right? So why is it that some countries have lower crime than the U.S.? Right, so what can we learn from that? And then between those two countries, what's interesting is they approach crime control a little bit differently, in part because they have very different political systems. So one is a monarchy, one is more of a parliamentary democracy that's part of the European Union, so it has its you know own rules about how to handle crime and justice issues. And the other thing that's interesting is that one of the hot topics in criminology is the relationship between immigration and crime. Mm-hmm. Right, so we talk about that a lot in the U.S. Uh, this is an issue in Europe as well. So the public is very concerned that when you have a lot of immigration, you're going to have more crime, even though the research does not support that in most places. Mm-hmm. So one of the tensions between this particular location is that Morocco and Spain are separated by the Strait of Gibraltar, which is roughly eight miles. 
walls. So you can stand in northern Morocco and see Spain. Hmm. Um, so when you see that and you think about how easy immigration is, um, and they have lots of different complex problems about immigration, so the relationship between immigration and crime becomes an important criminal justice issue. So that location then really becomes kind of a microcosm for studying the bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Here's a question from a student perspective that I think anybody interested in the program would maybe want to know. Um, how rigorously structured is the day-to-day, like the itinerary of the program? Yeah, so currently we have a rough itinerary um, mm-hmm. in that uh, the folks from ISA organize cultural activities for us. Um, so we'll be doing sightseeing, you know, like just learning what life is like in these two places. They are also organizing a piece of the academic component where we're going to meet with professionals. So we mm. were going to meet with criminal justice professionals, police officers, judges. Uh, we're trying to set up tours for correctional facilities, for police, national police offices. Right. Um, also social service providers, so uh, people who work with youth in trouble, people who work with domestic violence victims. Um, so once they have that established, um, that takes a lot of work getting people involved in that, then I will work out the rest of our academic time will be spent discussing. Um, so we'll, you know, for example, do a trip to a police station or whatever, talk to professionals, then follow up with a class discussion about that. Um, so it's fairly loose in terms of structure, and it's really driven by the activities of the program. There's more of the educational time is spent doing things, um, even though there is some classroom time, but that's a smaller proportion right. of the experience. I guess maybe a follow-up question to that mm-hmm. is, like, how much, <laughs> sounds silly compared to you know how great the actual study part sounds, but mm-hmm. how much free time can a student in this program expect? Because you know a huge part of study abroad is having some time to experience the country on your own. Absolutely, Um, and that's a really high priority for me, Um, particularly because you can't, you know, if you want students to think globally, right, you want them to be able to compare uh, experiences across countries, they have to have that experience. So Mm -hmm. there's actually a fair amount um, of free time. So we uh, have to have a certain amount of what we call academic contact hours. Right, so academic content because you get course credit for this. Right, um, and that's the same amount that you have at any uh, course here at UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it's uh, three credits for the program, and then you do one credit extra study abroad preparation work. So it's like the same amount of time you would spend taking one class, and then the rest of the time is yours. Um, so we do have. You know, some activities, there will be some optional group activities if they Mm want to take tours of things, um, you know, together. But there's lots of time for students to interact with people there, which is what we really want them to do. All right. You mentioned that things are still rough right now, Mm -hmm. but you're kind of in talks or arranging Mm -hmm. these tours and uh, working with local professionals. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any of those maybe hammered out enough to speak about one specifically. Like, do you know some place specifically that you might go and you could tell us about? Uh, just to kind of give us some information or, or, or maybe even just a primer on the kind of culture that you'll be exposing these mm-hmm. students to there. 
So I can't talk specifically yet about the criminal justice contacts because mm-hmm. those are the ones we're working out. Right. Um, and those are a little bit harder to um, nail down, although we have a, a nice wish list um, <laughs> that they're working on, which is it's going to turn out great. Um, but some of the cultural activities that they do, so for example, um, Morocco uh, is known for these um, medinas, um, which are these kind of large city markets that look like labyrinths. Um, so they have these big, tall walls, these very narrow alleys, and it's shops. Um, and literally, in one of the cities that we're going to visit, it's called Fez, um, they don't let us go off on our own because you can literally get lost oh. in them. Um, so they do that as a guided tour. But in other places, um, like the city we're going to spend most of our time in, which is called Meknes, you can actually navigate the Medina yourself. Hmm. Um, but this is just, a, you know, you're going shopping. And it could be shopping for whatever, groceries, um, for souvenirs. They have everything. It's uh, like a uh, uh, mall, their version of a mall, essentially. Um, but it feels so different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a unique experience. Um, and it's fascinating because it's uh, incredibly colorful. The walls are painted in different colors. The um, stands where people are selling things, um, some of them are more like kind of what you would imagine flea market stands. Others are like real shops. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything is like incredibly colorful. Lots of um, people in this very sort of tight, narrow space. Um, so it's just an amazing experience, um, and that's sort of the kind of flavor that we want students to get. You know, so something kind of mundane like going shopping becomes this really eye-opening look at you know life in a different place. Right. So we're not gonna like go to the Medina and see the Gap. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, you will find some things, particularly, um, you know, Morocco does have, you know, some Western places, but you're not going to see, you know, as much as your, there are some fast food places that kind mm-hmm. of thing, you know, if you're desperate for McDonald's, <laughs> you can find it oh, in Morocco. I, <laughs> um, I, however, could not find a Starbucks. That was a little disappointing, but mm. I, di- I didn't have as much time to look as we'll have on this trip, so maybe I'll still find one. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Office Hours. Welcome back to Office Hours. I'm David Cole, your host, here with board runner extraordinaire Brian connors Mankey and our guest, Professor Stamatel, talking about... Uh, well, so far we've been talking about a lot about education abroad, uh, and I think we'll continue on that straight for a little bit. Okay. Um, there are so many different kinds of study abroad opportunities here at the University of Kentucky. So I think maybe a good thing to do now would be to just answer uh, some very general questions about what type of program this is. Mm-hmm. So first of all, do we do students interested in the program need to know any sort of secondary language? So that's actually a great question. Um, so it is an English language program. Um, in Morocco, um, the two primary languages are Arabic and French. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are also lots of local languages. Um, and then, of course, um, Spanish in Spain. Um, I don't speak any of those languages. Um, and I managed to survive a week in this program and talk to lots of people not knowing any of these languages. Um, so students can do the same. And all of the academic components will be in English, both my parts and the parts where we're 
meeting with other local professionals. Um, now, of course, if students know one of these languages, this is an excellent opportunity for them to practice, mm -hmm. um, and that would be great. Um, particularly in Spain, um, students will be living with families there. So um, if you know the language, that's great, and if you don't, you learn how to communicate in other ways. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, so each individual student or maybe pairs will be sent yes. off with families? with families. Okay. Um, and this is because we're going to Granada, Spain, which is in um, southern Spain. It is um, a really hot spot for study abroad, mm -hmm. um, and they've been doing it there for a really long time. So they're incredibly well organized, and they have lots of contacts, and they place students in people's homes all the time with a lot of success. Um, so for that part of the program, they are going to send students to homes. And um, sometimes it will be one student per family. Sometimes it will be doubled up. It really just depends on the family's capacities, that sort of thing. Um, but students um, tend to really love that experience because mm -hmm. you get to interact every day with normal people. Um, and you get to talk about things other than crime and justice. And right. you know, you kind of get to see what everyday life looks like. Um, in Morocco students will be staying um, in the hotel um, together. We'll be in the same location and they'll have shared rooms there. But again, they'll still have plenty of opportunities to interact with everyday people. Mm -hmm. um, another question about the family stuff in Spain. Can students expect there to be like a real kind of grab bag of families that they'll be assigned to? Or are these like families that are... Well, I guess used to study abroad, maybe, um, well, I guess a better question would be, are they a wide assortment of family types, or would you expect students to be maybe in families with children their age, or people their age in the home, or to be older couples, could there be perhaps elderly people taking it. I'm just curious like what kind of assortment we've got here. Yeah so um, generally it's a mix mm -hmm. um, and people participate as hosts for lots of different reasons. Um, sometimes it is because they're older and their kids have moved out and it's a way to you know keep in touch with younger people um, you know when they have the space. Um, sometimes it's because they want their kids to be exposed to foreigners. Mm -hmm. um, so um, it's really the same reasons why, um, you know, folks in the U.S. host foreign students as well. Um, so the, I can't say that there's a certain, you know, kind of type of family that students will get assigned to. Um, it's done through ISA um, in terms of, you know, finding the families and vetting them, of course, to make sure students are in a good environment. Um, and again, because Granada has been doing this for so long, these are families who are um, pretty used to having company. Mm -hmm. uh, Sounds to me like David's like angling for like some kind of specific family to take care of him. <laughs> you know, if I if I get accepted in this program, I have very particular needs, Brian, and I just want to make sure that those needs are met. You know, I understand you need you need a, you need a second home in Europe, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I just say that there the person who runs the program in Morocco currently, the, this ISA program, started off as a student who went to study abroad in Spain hmm. um, and fell in love with it and went back for a couple of uh, semesters, so he did it two or three times, and then graduated and went back to work for a bit, um, and then eventually st stayed with study abroad. Hmm. Um, so he must have had a great 
experienced. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> One would guess. Yep. Uh, this might actually seem like sort of a silly or redundant question at this point, but I think it's worth maybe restating for people. What academic and, let's say, just life experience benefits mm -hmm. would you say students could get out of this program that you're leading? So the main goal for me is for students to be able to think globally. Mm -hmm. um, and by that, I mean to very simply um, appreciate what life is like in places outside of the United States. Um, and so, you know, we're exposed to lots of things through media um, that are international, um, but it's not the same as being on the ground. And so the thing about study abroad is that um, it taps all of your senses, mm -hmm. right? So you're not just seeing what life is like, you know, the, you're experiencing it. You are, you know, walking through the Medina. You are eating the food um, that people there eat. You are um, smelling what different places are like, um, which mm. we don't think about constantly consciously a lot, but once you've traveled, you start to kind of associate certain smells with certain places. Um, and the reason why that's important is because when we start to talk about issues that are really tricky, like why people commit crime, um, we tend to think of people as people like ourselves. Um, and so it becomes hard for us to understand why would somebody do something so horrible when we wouldn't do that. And so by broadening that experience and seeing what it's like to live under different kinds of conditions, it makes it easier for students to understand all kinds of social issues, not just crime. Wow. Okay. So it, it really is a broad study abroad experience. It, it really is. We, um, I actually, in my mind, have two target audiences. Mm -hmm. One is really general, any UK student, right? I'm not assuming you know sociology. I'm not assuming you know criminology. Okay. You don't have to have any particular grade standing. You can be a first-year student or a fourth-year student. Um, the idea is to have that experience. In addition to that, we do, in the sociology department, have a brand-new criminology minor. So, of course, this counts for that minor. So for students who are already in criminology, there will be enough um, new experiences that they can learn more. So it's not going to be redundant to what they've already learned, mm -hmm. in part because a lot of what we um, teach is American-focused. Um, we do a little bit of international stuff through the courses I teach, but um, this will really give them a different experience from what they've already learned here. Okay. Uh, real quick, do you know offhand like what kind of maybe course equivalents uh, students can expect out of this particular program or it's better to just let them find that out online yeah i'm sorry i'm just not, <laughs> not that well versed in what course how course equivalents and that sort but of it, thing it works if you know, i know i'm learning it but i'm not quite there yet but yeah. so this is the great thing about our education abroad office here at uk the support staff have been amazing mm -hmm. um, they've helped me you know work through this um, in a very um, positive, supportive environment, but I've also sent students there um, with lots of different kinds of questions, right. and they're fast. They'll get back to you immediately, and they'll absolutely give you the correct answer. Okay. So when exactly, or what are the dates on this, or are those hammered out yet? Yes, so we are um, leaving on May 15th, so soon after the, the semester ends, and it's three weeks, we're coming back June 6th. All right, awesome. Okay, we're going to take another break, and then we'll be back with more Office Hours. Welcome back to Office Hours. David Cole here with Board Runner Extraordinaire, 
Brian Connors Makey, and once again, our guest, Professor Stamatel. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, we've talked quite a bit about study abroad, but I think now we want to move into some more um, personal elements of your work. And you do stuff with criminal justice. <laughs> and I'm wondering, uh, just first off, what kind of courses are you teaching at UK or have been for the past four years? So I teach um, mostly criminology. Mm -hmm. I teach our introductory criminology course, which is a 300-level sociology course that is incredibly popular, and we get students from all over campus, not just A&S. Um, we get students from lots of other colleges, too. Um, and it's a really great course. This is sort of, you know, um, everything you want to know about how we study crime scientifically. Um, and then I teach a 400-level um, cross-national crime course. This is my international crime course. And so mm -hmm. it's um, a more advanced class, um, a sm smaller class size, um, where we get into more topics about um, how you study crime internationally and then also sort of what the current hot topics are in international crime. Okay. And just for my curiosity, what are some of the current hot topics in international crime? So the big one currently uh, is human trafficking. Mm -hmm. um, and you hear about that a lot in the news as well. Um, but this is uh, on the radar, not just of government officials, but it's a really um, tricky scientific problem in terms of how you study it and how you identify that it's actually human trafficking as opposed to prostitution or other things going on. Um, and then I would say the um, second big one, uh, which has also been in the news a lot, particularly this week, is cybercrime um, and the international components of that. So if you were following the news about the um, Sony hacking and the accusations that it was North Korea, so how kind of international politics plays out. Interesting, interesting. Um, when it comes to cybercrime specifically, do we need to be worried about a bunch of 13-year-olds with botnets, or is it a bigger threat than that? Well, this is really hard to say. So um, there's, uh, there's a really interesting book, I think it's called Cybercrime and Cyber War, if I remember correctly, um, that kind of gives you the state of the knowledge, like what are the big problems, what do you need to be worried about? And it's interesting because you read about all these things like ransomware, um, like botnets, right? Um, and you kind of get almost paranoid. Mm -hmm. um, and you think, oh my gosh, you know, I, there's no control over this. And then they end up the book by saying, well, even though we have the capabilities to do this and that, you know, it happens occasionally, the actual harm done um, is not as great as we imagine it to be. Hmm. Um, and so there are some people who use these things to do, you know, bad things. Um, but in general, um, a lot of the hacking incidents and that sort of thing are trying to make a, a point, and they're inconvenient and annoying, but they're not doing serious damage. Okay. Now, the flip side of that, though, is um, questions about identity theft and stealing credit card information. That's a, a different problem that's, you know, real to lots of people. Right. And, I mean, I, I guess the scariest thing... To me, personally, when it comes to that kind of thing is, you know, anonymity gives people a lack of accountability. And that allows people to do terrible, terrible things and not even feel bad about it. So, you know, I mean, thankfully, these recent hacks weren't the worst thing in the world. But they certainly could have been a lot worse. And you, I think it opens the door to thinking about, well, what if a security company... Uh, were attacked instead of an entertainment one right and things like that so you know i can't 
help but ask you now since you're here and we have the opportunity what are your opinions on that state of affairs like do you think personally that this is going to get worse before it gets better or do we kind of have a hold on it um no i i think it's something we need to be concerned about and i think it's something we actually also need to invest resources in in terms of training people with technical skills to handle these kinds of problems, mm -hmm. right? So being able to understand, you know, the criminal aspects, but also being able to understand the technology aspects, which is um, a tricky combination. Um, but for example, there was an incident, I don't know if I can remember the date exactly, but maybe three or four years ago, where um, Russia essentially collapsed the banking system of its neighboring country, Estonia. Um, so... You know, that's a pretty serious offense yeah. mm -hmm. um, that affected lots of people and uh, was considered as a, you know, a very threatening act by the Estonian government. And eventually they worked it out diplomatically. But in other circumstances, you can absolutely imagine a country, you know, considering that an act of war and responding differently, you know, mm -hmm. perhaps not so diplomatically. Um, so the potential is there. Um, and I think one of the problems is because of the, uh, the anonymity of a lot of the people involved in this activity, when you think of hackers, for example, and that sort of thing, I don't think we have a good sense of what their capabilities are. Mm -hmm. right? So we react. Right? When something bad happens, then we're like, oh, they could do that. We didn't know. Right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, the Twitter account of the Pentagon was hacked this week. Great. Right, that's Fantastic. not terribly comforting. Um, so who knew, right? So now we know that they, that people can do that. Um, that so, explains why the Pentagon started following me yeah. on Twitter. <laughs> but now, you know, this is uh, you know, we're in this reactive mode um, where we need to be proactive. We need to be able to anticipate what the capabilities are, and this is where I think we we don't quite have um, uh, a workforce that has the skills that can do that yet. Mm -hmm. So it's not as laughable as 90s hacker movies with a bunch of green text scrolling across the screen and somebody saying I'm in. Right. It's now a real threat. It is. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, be frightened, <laughs> listeners. I've I've become more frightened in the last few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we talk about cybercrime, I get scared, Brian. This seems to happen quite a bit. Now, you you said earlier in the show that you consider yourself still new faculty to UK. Mm -hmm. But um, you're definitely not new to your field. You have right. quite a bit of experience. I was wondering if um, you might be willing to talk to us about some of the uh, published material that you've put out in the past. Sure. Um, Anything, really. <laughs> I, um, I do most of my research um, comparing crime. And by that, I mean comparing across places. Um, and in my case, I define places as countries, right? So why do some countries have more crime than others? Mm -hmm. um, or um, for me, the more interesting question is, why do some countries not have a crime problem at all? So these low crime countries, and I actually recently um, just published a piece on that. Um, there was a book done in the 1980s saying, what can we learn from countries that have very little crime? And then that book kind of made a splash and nobody has talked about it since. Um, so we always talk about lots of crime and crime being a problem, but there are lots of places in the world where crime isn't a problem. Mm -hmm. So that's one of my um, research uh, agendas. Um, the other is um, I'm interested in um, comparing crime over time, right? So what makes crime rates go up and down? Um, so, for example, the United States has been in a crime drop since the 1990s, although people don't think of that because if you 
only pay attention to the media, you're constantly bombarded with horrible things happening. Absolutely. Crime has been declining since the 1990s steadily in the United States. But for me, what's interesting, it's also been declining in other countries, particularly Western European countries. So when we try to explain that in the U.S., we focus on, well, what are we doing in the U.S., right? How are we changing police, for example? But when you look at that comparatively, it makes you think about, well, what are broader global processes, right? Why is this phenomenon happening in different places? Mm -hmm. Um, And most of my uh, work from my dissertation has focused on what happens when you have countries that have... um, political crisis, like a regime collapse, mm-hmm. uh, what happens to crime, right? We always assume, well, crime goes up, right? Everything's out of control. People are out of control. Um, and that's true to some extent, but it also goes down pretty quickly, and nobody talks about that piece and what makes it go down. Um, so I started off this work um, when I was uh, in graduate school studying crime in Eastern Europe, looking at what happened after the fall of communism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still do work in that area, and I've moved on to um, expanding that to some other places. And so one of my other recent projects um, that I haven't published on yet, but I'm um, finishing up a paper, my first paper on this topic, is what's happened to crime in Greece since the Eurozone crisis, right? So they had this major economic collapse with a lot of political um, consequences to that as well. Real quick, mm-hmm. um, is because you tell us because I don't know, and I imagine there's maybe at least one of the person listening mm-hmm. who doesn't know, what exactly is the Eurozone crisis? Sure. So this started um, a few years ago, roughly uh, 2010, is mm-hmm. my best guess, um, where so you have lots of uh, countries in Europe who share the same currency, the euro, mm-hmm. um, and they're all tied together economically. Um, and for a country to join this Eurozone, this communal uh, collective economic unit, you have to um, meet certain criteria in terms of keeping your books balanced within your country. Right? So you have to be financially sound in order to be part of the system. Okay. Well, when the Euro um, zone expanded, they allowed some countries in that were a little bit shaky economically, and Greece was one of them. And so they've been trying to help Greece improve its economy so it can be a stable member of the Eurozone, um, and that sort of fell apart. So there were some internal things happening in Greece, particularly related to corruption and poor financial management Mm -hmm. um, that caused an economic problem in Greece. But because they were using the euro, it affects the whole system. So it affects lots of different countries. Um, And so this was a pretty major problem. Um, and again, there's a lot of political upheaval, right? So people lose jobs because you've collapsed the economy, essentially, right? Yeah, that's pretty bad. So thing it's a bad to happen, thing to happen. Yeah. Um, and so what we suspect is that when things like that happen, um, governments kind of lose control, right? And then people start acting out. So you start seeing news stories that violence is increasing in Greece because of this lack of control. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're doing a study, I'm working with a colleague in Greece, um, to see if that's actually been the case. And what we found is that it's true of some crimes, um, for example, uh, some property crimes, theft, um, but not true violent crimes. But what the media is reporting is that violence is increasing, okay. more murders, more robberies, that sort of thing. All right. Well, we're going to take a real quick break, and then we'll come back and finish up office hours. So stay tuned. Since we're still talking about criminals and criminology with uh, Professor Samatel, I wanted to ask a little bit about that paper uh, that was written, you said, like 25 years ago or so on 
the kind of low crime or no crime countries um, and how that was kind of a revolutionary or kind of impactful paper, but then kind of went away and people kind of lost sight of it in terms of using it as a research kind of point. And you've kind of gone back to look at it a little bit and uh, just want to know if you kind of what, what you've seen in that in terms of uh, low crime or no crime countries. I'm not saying there's no crime countries, but low crime countries um, and what maybe is the, any kind of commonality that they have in terms of their political structure or their criminal system or whatever it may be. So this book that was published, I believe, was 1983. Um, it's by a criminologist named Frida Adler, who is one of the biggest names in international criminology. She's retired now, but she's one of the early um, criminologists who actually looked at crime outside of the United States. She um, looked at 10 countries um, in the 1980s that she identified as having low crime rates to figure out what they had in common. And she made an argument that they're similar in terms of uh, a term that she called cinemi, meaning that they were in sync, um, that countries uh, that had low crime had criminal justice systems that worked well with the political system, that worked well with people's values, and they got a lot of buy-in. So everyone agreed on what good behavior was and how to achieve it, and all of the social institutions worked to the same goal, right? So s schools were socializing kids properly, parents were doing their job, right? So everything is kind of in sync. Um, and so what happened after that, even though a lot of people sort of lost sight of this idea about low crime countries, is that we got into this mode of just categorizing countries. You're either high crime or you're not, right? So it's like a state. And one of the things I was interested in is we know that crime changes over time, right? So again, in the 1980s, we would characterize the U.S. very differently than we would now because crime has been decreasing in the United States. So I wanted to see what happened to her 10 countries in the past 25 years. Um, and the other thing is when she wrote the book in the 1980s, we didn't have very good information to work with, and we have much better statistics about international crime. So I went back to these 10 countries and got all the information to figure out, well, which ones are still low crime and which ones aren't and, and why. And basically what I found is that a lot of them are still low crime. Um, for example, Algeria in northern Africa, which is a neighbor of Morocco, is a low crime country and has been historically. Mm -hmm. Nepal in Asia um, still is a low crime country. Um, but there were two in particular that I would say lost this status. Um, one was Peru in South America and the other was Bulgaria uh, in Eastern Europe. And the reason why is because both of these countries had pretty um, severe political crises. And you can map that very nicely to their crime trends. And what happens is after you have a political crisis, you have to um, somehow regain control. Um, so if you can bring stability back, then you can lower crime rates. Um, but if you still have this where you have like a lot of you know, people coming in and out of power over time, um, it's really hard to bring crime rates down. So those two countries were similar um, in terms of um, no longer being low crime countries. Uh, and since you do a lot of work in Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. um, how did kind of the Bulgaria kind of uh, look um, next to some of its neighbors. Yeah, so um, next to other countries that have now joined the European Union, like Poland or the Czech Republic, um, it has higher crime rates. Um, it still has lower crime rates, however, than Russia, which has um, some pretty high crime rates, particularly violent crime rates, much higher than any other country in that region. 
Um, and Bulgaria has been um, working very hard to bring its crime rates down, but it has a very severe uh, corruption problem. Um, and when you have corruption in the government, you have corruption in the criminal justice system, um, and then you tend to have higher crime rates. Um, so they're not bad. I wouldn't call it a, a super high crime country, but relative to the, the, its neighbors, it is higher. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you talked a little bit about how uh, the U.S. crime has been on the decline since the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and if any of your research kind of uh, shows or, or other people's research, it shows maybe particular things that that's pointing to and mm -hmm. why. Um, is it the age of the Internet? Is the Internet saving everyone from crime? And it's just now cybercrime and actual street crime has gone away. Well, just tell us that. That's yeah. all we need to hear. I mean, that's one thing right. to think about, right? When we talk about crime is going down, what kind of crime? We're not talking about cybercrime in here. We're talking about, like, these street crimes. Um, so the great crime drop in the U.S., um, as it's referred to, is a bit controversial. So there are several different competing perspectives. Um, some... Uh, there's a lot of credit given to changes in how we police, um, and New York City is a great example of that, introducing new technology, introducing community policing, that sort of thing. Now, of course, this past year, the police have not been painted in such a great light, but if you look back a little bit further, there have been some really positive changes. Um, they, Lots of um, police chiefs like to take all the credit for the crime drop, but we know that there are other things going on changes in behavior with respect to drug usage, um, so different kinds of drugs being popular that don't lead to so much violent behavior, um, changes in the economy, the economy goes up, you tend to have a little bit less crime, although that's not always clear cut. Um, so there are lots of different factors going on. Um, looking at the European crime drop, they're pointing more toward um, uh, what they call um, uh, well, they're looking at different kinds of security measures, right? So these are affluent countries that have a lot of, for example, valuable goods that could be stolen, but they also invest a lot in protection. So burglar alarms, car alarms, that sort of thing. So um, they argue that there's this um, private citizen uh, action in terms of protecting yourself better from being a victim. Interesting. Um, let me put you on the spot mm -hmm. one more time as we're about to only well, just a little bit of time left here. Um, if you had the ability to kind of uh, map out a new course here at mm -hmm. UK that's um, tied to your research and kind of tied to your interest, um, what would that look like? What would that new course maybe kind of uh, be? I would like to do a new course. Um, I would call it something along the lines of the global politics of crime control. So thinking about how we control crime, not so much who does it and how it happen, why it happens, but what, how we respond to it and how that's um, no longer a local problem. So for example, we have things now like an international criminal court um, and what is its role in criminal justice? Um, how do we respond to crimes that cross national boundaries like cyber crimes, but also human trafficking, that sort of thing. Um, so looking more at um, crime as a global issue. Well, you, have, you should be on the lookout for that, students, UK students. It could happen anytime in the near future. Uh, well, thank you once again for being on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. David, this is David. This is David's last show in the uh, host seat. I didn't even get him a cake or anything, so I feel bad about that. Um, but thanks to David for all his work the last semester. Um, and. 
It'll be missed, but we will we'll soldier on somehow. Somehow. We'll find a way. Thank you, Brian, for being so extraordinary at running the board. <laughs> uh, I will extraordinarily play uh, a song or two more as we head on out. Thanks again for tuning in to Office Hours here on WRFL 88.1 Radio Free Lexington. <laughs> Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive.